Hey guys. Hey everybody. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Chase. And this is Crime with the K. Back at it. <laughs> Back at it. You literally never I still to this day. We're like 120 episodes in. Don't know what to say after it. No, but we're here. We're back. We're back. So we'll jump right in. Coffee of the day. Um coffee of the day. Oh my oh, next oh, so. my god. Chase just unplugged his mic. Yep, that was backwards. <laughs> okay, all right. right. Um, so coffee of the day. Coffee we've, of the day. We've been on a kick. No, you've been on a kick. Yeah, I've been I on just a keep kick. going. Because <laughs> I've been funding it. Yeah, that's I'm true. Like, I'll just pay for it if you come with me again. Yep. So we went to Summit again, and I saw how much milk they put in it today. Now I know why I get so sleepy. It's a lot of milk. Yep. A lot of milk, so that's why, I mean, it puts me to bed. Mm-hmm. Nice cold cup of milk. I came home and added an extra espresso shot to mine. I know, and now hers is a lot darker than mine. Yeah. But, yeah, so we went to Summit again, got the iced latte with vanilla. She went plain. Yep, with almond milk. Yep. You got whole milk. I got whole milk. They use the Califia Farms Barista Blend almond milk, and I think that's why it's so good. Also, their, like, espresso machine is, like, super fancy. Yeah. It's so good. But that was our coffee of the day. Yeah, when we got bagels. Yep, from Einstein. Einstein bagels, places smack diddly. Mm-hmm. And then... Does not compete with Bagel World, though, in the North Shore Mass. Okay, well, I've never Sorry. been, so I think it does. <laughs> and the place is popping today. And I'm a little sick. Got a little stuffy nose, throat hurts. So, sound a little weird, probably. It's okay. Yeah. And if you hear a lot of hooting and hollering and banging. I was just going to say. Yeah. We have a special guest. Yep. She's upstairs. Yeah, she's here. Banging around. She's back. I know. She's moving out, hopefully, it with no moving truck. It's so. really been a month-long process but of her moving out. Yeah. But. I don't know when she's actually moving out. But she's not staying here. She has all her stuff's here. She keeps coming back every Sunday and then banging around and then leaves her. I don't know. So, if you hear that, just that's, I don't know, it's been really loud. It's her saying hi. Again. So jumping into today's case, today's case is a listener request. So today's case is a listener request, and it's very different than the case that we covered last week. There's no, like, scandal or affair. Oh. We've got some craziness. Okay. And today's case is covering the Lilalid family murders. The what? Lilalid. Lilalid? The Lilalid. Lilalid. Some people say Lilalid, but I think it's, which it might be, but when I did Google Translate, it said all right. Well. The Little Lid Family Murders. So thank you, Casey, for sending this one in. Oh, Casey. Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay, Casey. So on April 26, 1997, a van full of the Little Lid family was driving through some back roads in rural Greene County, Tennessee. The family consisted of Vidar Little Lid, who was age 34, Delphina Little Lid, who was 28, their daughter Tabitha, who was six, and their son Peter, who was two. The van with the young family was headed home to Knoxville from a Jehovah's Witness workshop in johnson county tennessee and the lilas pulled into a rest stop in green county they were getting some snacks some gas since they'd been driving for a while and had gotten a little bit later in their drive okay but little did they know that this would be the last thing that they ever chose to do voluntarily while at the rest stop a group of young people pulled up they were wearing all black became they got in contact with the littlelids and as they got closer and as the Lilids began to engage with these folks, these people took out their guns. Oh. Okay. They instructed them to get back into their car and drive. Two young men 
and two men. <laughs> two young men and a man. Two young men and a man. Two young women and two men jumped into the van, all holding the family at gunpoint. Vidar was given instructions to drive deeper into Greene County on an even more dark and desolate road. As the van made its way down a lonely, dark country road, the kidnappers instructed Vidar to pull off onto the side, onto a patch of gravel. And one by one, the Lilid family was instructed to get out of the car. Vidar climbed out of the driver's seat as instructed, and Delphina got out of the car holding the hands of her two-year-old son, Peter, and her six-year-old daughter, Tabitha. The two women in black, the young man, and the boy all climbed out of the van, each holding a gun and pointing them at the Lilids. Oh, jeez. As everyone was getting out of the car, another car could be heard coming down the road, circling around the van, then pulling in alongside the van and parking. The car kept its headlights on and pointed them in the direction of the family. So where are they at? Just in desolate in the middle desolate of nowhere Tennessee, right now? Tennessee, yeah. Okay. The Lillard's family's bodies were then discovered later that night in oh, a no. ditch off of... Oh. Yeah, she is. <laughs> you guys hear this? Off of Payne Hollow Lane. Oh, again. The Lillard family bodies were discovered later that night in a ditch off of Payne Hollow Lane, just a few miles away from where the van and the unknown vehicle had pulled off. Hmm. It was evident that someone had forced this family to line up in the ditch and then shot them execution style. Jeez almighty. Yeah. Oh my God. Especially a two-year-old and a six-year-old. Two-year-old Peter, who had been shot twice, and six-year-old Tabitha, who had also been shot, were both laying unconscious in the ditch, but both were still alive. Oh my God. No way. Vidar and Delphina were pronounced dead at the scene. And Peter and Tabitha were immediately taken to a nearby hospital so doctors could begin working to save the lives of these two children. Peter did survive. Wow. But Tabitha, unfortunately, passed away a short time later in the hospital. So the two-year-old, the youngest, was able to survive. Wow. So let's backtrack a little bit. Who were the little lids? What happened to them? And who were these people that held them at gunpoint and shot them? That's amazing. That's insane, though. Two years old, and you got to live the rest of your life. I know. And like you, two, you've already like gone through. Or to be screwed up enough to shoot a two-year-old. And a yeah, six-year-old. no, that's yeah, that's another story. <laughs> yeah. Many would say that the Lillid family was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Vidar Lillid grew up in Bergen, Norway, and in 1985 he moved to the United States. In 1989, Vidar married Delphina Zelaya, and she was a first-generation Honduran-American from New Jersey whom he'd met through their involvement in the Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, so the Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm-hmm. Mm, we have one of those down the street. Oh, yes, we do. We do. That place is poppin'. It is poppin'. Um, it's like their, I don't know. It's probably like the only one around here, though. Yeah, I don't know what it's called. Their meeting, their church. Oh, I have no idea. I just know they dress nice and come to your door. Yeah. Yeah. She's saying hi. Dude, we're catching this all on mics. I know. It's awesome. Welcome to our Earthside Hill. Oh, uh, yeah. They got married in 1989, and Vidar and Delphina would later on have two children, Tabitha, who was born in 1990, and Peter, who was born in 1995. Oh, look at you. Twinsies. Uh, twins. On the day of April 26, 1997, the family was on their way home after a Jehovah's Witness gathering. Vidar had to be back at work the next morning as he worked as a bellman at the Holiday Inn Cedar Bluff in West Knoxville, Tennessee. And Delphina had to get back home to get the kids ready for the week and then prepare the homeschool lessons that she was going to be teaching them. Oh, so they're homeschooled. Yep. The family had just moved into their new home in Powell, Tennessee, only six months ago. The home was rented, but this was still a really big accomplishment for the little lids as they'd been saving up to move into a house from a small apartment. The house needed a lot of work. But the Lillids didn't mind. 
In fact, they had been saving up to buy the house and then do some renovations on the home, like the upstairs and turning it into an apartment for Delphina's mother. The family had also been saving up to buy a swing set for the backyard for the kids, as this was their first taste of having their own property where the kids could run around and play safely. The family also had a trip planned in the following month. Vidar and Delphina were planning to take their children to Norway, where they were going to spend some time with Vidar's relatives. While on the way home from the Jehovah's Gathering, some friends had invited the Little Lids out to dinner, but the Little Lids declined, as they were really tired and they really needed to just get home. They also really needed to save some money, as they had a lot of big purchases out on the horizon. Once they turned down the dinner invitation, the family got into their beige-colored 1987 Dodge and headed south on Interstate 8. They made it about halfway home when around 7.20 p.m., the family pulled into a rest stop slash gas station at mile marker 41. Vidar Lilid then approached a group of six young people at the rest stop. This is not uncommon for Jehovah's Witnesses. That's typically how they share information about their religion, and that's they're known for trying to actively recruit new members by approaching them. And this is also the early 90s, so it wasn't like social media was a thing that you could have an instagram page i mean they're still doing it to this day anyways do they oh it hasn't happened since i was in like middle school oh uh, no it happened when i was in high school really because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you remember they they thought uh we thought it was my dad <laughs> oh i told you that remember that because we were at like my buddy's house and they knocked the door oh. and we were like oh that's a jehovah's witness it was just my dad <laughs> yeah. yeah no they're still out there <laughs> yeah and your dad got really mad at you for not answering the door. Yeah, I was at my oh there it is again. Yeah, yeah I was at my buddy's house and like he, someone knocked on the door. My buddy went to go check the door. And he was like, "Oh, it's just Jehovah's Witness." And I was like, "Oh, okay." So we went back to doing our thing, and then another knock at the door. And we're like, "Oh my god, he won't leave us alone." And then my dad <laughs> called me, and he's like, "I'm out front. What are you doing?" And I was like, "Oh," because he was in his work like college, dress shirt tie. Because they do dress. Nice. They dress nice. So yeah, Johnny was like, "Yeah, that's just Jehovah's Witness. We're good, bro." <laughs> As he's standing outside waiting for us. <laughs> oh my gosh. Vidar, like all Jehovah's Witnesses, when they come to your door, they do have good intentions. And like Vidar did have good intentions when approaching these young people. This group of six young people consisted of Edward Deed Mullins, who was 19, Joseph Lance Risner, who was 20, Crystal Sturgill, who was 18, Jason Blake Bryant, who was 14, and Karen R. Howell, who was 17. So all teenagers. All teenagers. And Natasha Kinnett, who was 18, I believe. All right. So one adult. Yeah. Two. Three. Two. Edward was 19. Oh, okay. Joe was 20. Natasha, 18. Oh, okay. So yeah. one one in their 20s, but most of them are still teens. One 14. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. What are they doing hanging out together? That's my question. Oh, just wait. Okay. Because I was about to say, 14 and 20, it's a little much. Mm-hmm. Like, where's your parents? Yeah. Just, um, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Edward Dean Mullins, who was 19, he was born in 1978 in Harold, Kentucky. He left school in 1996 during his senior year, but he was working on getting his GED. Edward was not a troubled kid growing up, and he never got himself into any sort of trouble. When he was a teenager, he didn't have any sort of criminal record, and he worked at a grocery store in Pikeville, Kentucky. Okay. Family and friends of Edward said that his behavior took a really big turn for the worse when he began dating Natasha Cornett, and the two had begun discussing plans to get married. Hmm. Joseph Lance Risner was born on October 13th, 1976 in Hazard, Kentucky, because they knew that he was going to be a hazard to people. When he oh, is that, is that what it is? Yeah. Mm, okay. Joseph never knew his biological father, 
and when his mother remarried, he took his stepfather's last name. Joseph, just like Edward, had been described as a good student. He worked hard in school. He never got into any trouble. He did have dreams to get a good job and have a family, but that all changed when his mother and his stepfather divorced when he was in the sixth grade. Mm. This is when Joseph began acting out, and this was his turning point in behavior. Joseph began using marijuana, drinking alcohol, and during early high school, he began using LSD. Oh, wow. Okay, that's a little jump. Yes. Just a little bit. Just a little tad. Later in life, Joseph would claim that he had sexual relationships with two of his babysitters when he was only 12 years old. Oof. He then failed 7th and 8th grade, and this is when he met the other five people in the group. The school district was called Betsy Lane, and that's where all of these people wound up meeting is through the Betsy Lane School District. Joseph dropped out of high school and went on to join the U.S. Army, but he was quickly discharged after testing positive for marijuana during a drug screening. Once he was discharged, Joseph went back to school to earn his GED, and he applied to colleges where he was accepted at Mayo Regional Technology Center in September of 1996. I mean, okay. Right. You all mess up. And then he you, was on a path. Yeah, you get back on your good path. That's, yep, he was on that's a path. good. Yeah. Joseph was the oldest of the group, standing in at 20 years old. Okay, yeah. From what I think, I think Joseph would have been fine if he didn't run with this crowd, but... Yeah, but you could tell, like, he, he was something where it would easily... It trouble. Well, and he could easily fall right back into it if he didn't have the proper people around him. Yep, 100%. Yeah. Crystal Rena Sturgill was born on March 13th, 1979 in Harold, Kentucky. Crystal never knew the name of her biological father because her mother refused to ever share his name, and his name was never listed on her birth certificate. Ooh. Like the others, Crystal hadn't really gotten into any trouble, She'd been suspended from school a few times, but it wasn't anything serious. Her teachers did praise her and had some nice things to say about her. And during the time of the crime, Crystal was a senior at Betsy Lane High School, and she was also attending Floyd County Technical School in Drift, Kentucky. At school, Crystal worked in the Betsy Lane Elementary School Daycare Co-op Program, and her supervisors really liked her. And the parents liked her, and the students liked her. Everyone had nice things to say. School records do show that Crystal was an above-average student. She was getting really good grades in all of her classes. But throughout high school, Crystal began to dabble in drugs and alcohol, and this began to reflect in her grades. She did course correct a little bit because she did want to go off to college. So when she took the ACTs, she got a score of 28. That's good. The the highest you can get is a 36. Yeah. Oh, really? Now yep. it's 36? What was it? It used to, it wasn't that, right? I don't think so. Like, I remember I being in like the 20s was like almost a perfect, like up higher, high 20s was like, was, yeah. Damn, if you were getting 36s, I don't even remember that. I didn't take that ACTs. When, by the time we went to college, the ACTs weren't required. I think it was like two years before that for mass, like, yeah, I well, yeah, I took them. I took the ACT and the SAT. Really? Yeah, but I'm, I took I, the SATs twice. I think I took each once and I was like, I'm good. I'm done. Yeah. And whatever. I took them twice because my math score was not good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's like, honestly. It's... I didn't know it was up at 36, though. Mm-hmm. Wow. ACTs, I think, are. Or, wait. ACTs. The ACT is. What did I say? What did I take? You took the SAT. <laughs> that's like a different score. <laughs> that's like 1500, I think. Yeah. I know that's, that's like a. Yeah, no, it's. Yeah, it's like a perfect score. It's like. Well, I don't even know. know. You know what? <laughs> Screw it. We're, we're not. We didn't get it. We're not academically no. gifted, so like. I have no, no clue. Honestly. I was just trying to make it by. I, and like, <laughs> like I'm honestly. sorry, but that was the most unserious, serious place you had to be. Like, you had to show up at a certain time. You got like a couple breaks 
couldn't be on your phone, couldn't look over at someone else. Like, it was so, like, serious for no reason. Yeah. I'm like, bro, it's a test. Like, this is nothing. Like, this isn't going to show anything other than, like, yeah, you know math problems. I think for us it was normal because, like, we took – you guys didn't have MCAS. Like, we had MCAS every year. So the AC – what if my what did I take? The SAT. SAT. <laughs> SATs just felt like MCAS again. Like, I just felt like I was like, oh, yeah, I'm with my MCAS people. No, us was, like, all the schools randomly showed up. And you had to sign up for it. And you went to oh. one school and then you, all these random kids were there to take it. No. Yeah, no joke. I didn't like it. It was stressful. However. All right, yeah, back to the story. <laughs> we're, not, we're not smart. However, Crystal shared with the world in 1996 that life at home really wasn't the best. Hmm. Her mother did go on to remarry, and Crystal had accused her stepfather of repeated sexual abuse while she was growing up. The accusations really drove a wedge between Crystal and her mom, and based on what I read, I don't think that her mom really believed her. Hmm. That's always awful. Yeah, always bad. This led Crystal to move in with her aunt in Prestonburg, Kentucky, and she began attending Prestonburg High School in 1997. However, she really was not vibing with her aunt or the new school, so she ended up moving out and trying somewhere new. From the time of the allegations in December to the time that Crystal was arrested in April, there was only a five-month period of time, and Crystal had moved around to 13 different places. 13? 13. Oh, my God. You know how bad that is. Yeah. Like, ugh, so geez almighty. A lot of unsteadiness, no stabilization in Crystal's life. She'd obviously gone through something extremely awful, and her mother wasn't believing her. No, that's awful. So the connection here is that Crystal was really good friends with Edward Mullins, but Crystal did not like Edward's girlfriend, Natasha. So Crystal was extremely critical of their relationship, which we'll talk about shortly. Okay. Yeah. I don't think many people were a fan of Natasha's choices, but y'all, I mean, I won't, y'all can decipher. I mean, I don't think any of these people made the greatest decisions no. in their life. And I also think there was a lot of unsteadiness. There's a lot of sexual abuse. Yeah. And just like, yeah. they obviously all met for a reason mm-hmm. and it's because they all connected on a certain level of something. So, yeah. you know. So Jason Blake Bryant, the youngest of the group at only 14 years old, was born on July 18th, 1982 in Hellier, Kentucky. Jason only had an IQ of 85, and he had the emotional and social skills of only an 11-year-old. So 70 to 84 is borderline mental disability. 85 to 114 is average intelligence. 115 to 129 is above average or, quote, bright. Oh, okay. I'm not in the bright... (laughs) I think I'm below the bright. I think I'm in the average, but I do think I'm pretty bright. And then 130 to 144 is moderately gifted, and 145 to 159 is highly gifted. Jason had a lengthy history of drug and alcohol use, which began when he was only three years old. Three? Mm-hmm. Did he get into it, like, accidentally or something? Um, I think he came from parents who were into it and i honestly i think the addiction started when he was in his mom's belly that's what i was thinking yeah. like i don't think it probably it was already and he was already was addicted just, when he was a kid yeah. and then it was when just was around born. the house yeah. yeah they didn't really dig too much on their past um but they just weren't none of them had a good past to put into perspective jason was only in eighth grade at the time of this yeah yeah because so, he's like, the youngest yeah. you know? jason's connection was that he had met natasha Cornette in pikeville kentucky only a month before the murders took place Karen R. Howell was born on September 25th, 1979, in Delaware, Ohio. Karen's family had up and moved to Kentucky when she was only three years old. And she had a very rough and a very violent childhood. Yeah. 
Her father was an abusive alcoholic, and her mom had a lot of mental health problems. Karen did grow up in an extremely strict religious household, and her mother's punishment would be to make her stand on a Bible when she did anything wrong. Stand on a Bible? Mm-hmm. But standing on a Bible, that thing is not big. That's the whole point is like... So one foot or two feet? Um, I don't know. Also, wouldn't that be like against the... Like, I don't think you're supposed to stand on top of a Bible. I feel like that's like a bad juju move. I've covered cases before where the parents were strict religious household and they also, their punishments were to stand on the Bible. But to me, like, isn't that kind of disrespectful to the Bible? Towards the Bible? You're standing on it? I would never even put the Bible on the floor. No. And I don't even... Like, I, I mean, I believe in God. I've said this before. I believe in God and I'm catholic in my own way but like i don't own a bible but i feel like if i had a bible it would be like a purse you just don't put it on the floor <laughs> it just doesn't go there it's so just bad me, juju standing on it would be the last even worse thing. yeah yeah i don't know i feel like that's i don't know okay yeah what, know. who are we yeah who are, who we? are we i'm just i don't know i'm from the sons of lucifer what do i know yeah well, yeah i don't know anything so Her parents would get into awful, violent, bloodbath fights in front of the kids, and they did this up until they divorced when Karen was nine years old. Now, Karen was recorded as having, quote, borderline mentally disabled with an IQ of 78, and her emotional and mental intelligence had been stunted. I will say, like, all these people hanging out, they all found each other, and, like, obviously we understand why, but, like, what were their conversations like on a daily basis? That's what I'd be Oh, I'll, I'll tell you. Don't worry. We're good. Don't worry. It, it can't I be have... super bright. Like, oh, no. it wasn't like, it's not, how are we going to do better mm-mm. in life? Oh, no, it's, yeah. not, it's not how are we going to do better. No. It's, it's actually, how are we going to get to hell? Yeah. Oh. No, I'm okay. not kidding. Well, it makes sense. I mean, uh, there there has there must have been some really interesting conversations. Yeah, no, it's okay. nothing like. So what do you like to do on the weekends? Yeah, like, I like to huh, go to what do you spin. Got, yeah. How was your week? Yeah, no, oh God, How no. was school? Because they weren't there. Nope, nope. So Karen claimed that she had been sexually abused between the ages of five and ten by both her uncle and a cousin. She said that this made her extremely afraid of relationships and particularly afraid of men. By the age of 13, Karen had begun engaging in self-harm as she was still living with her mother and almost all different types of turmoil that was taking place in the home. It's so sad. It's I will say, like, their childhoods are very sad. But again, it's like, you're sad for the kid. You're not scared. You're not sad for the person that made the decision. No, but it is like, it is crazy how they all managed to find each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How they connected on this. At the age of 14, Karen did end up moving out because she and her mother fought way too often. I don't know who she went to live with, but this really opened up a whole new door for her and not in a good way. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, someone who didn't really care. No. After moving out of her mother's home, Karen began dabbling in really heavy drug use, particularly LSD, and a lot of it. She didn't have any history of violence, and there was a time when Karen did LSD and had a really bad trip, and she tried to chew her friend's arm off, and police did have to get involved. She later chalked that up, too. It was just a bad trip. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. And how did the friend not, like... I wonder how that situation got. Were you asleep and you just woke up to her chewing your arm off? Because, like, I wouldn't let someone get that close to me to start chewing my arm off. But I don't know. All right. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Karen also really struggled with mental illness. She really always wanted to harm herself. She had a documented four previous suicide attempts. Jeez almighty. Twice by cutting her wrists and twice by overdosing on drugs. 
Karen was having problems at home, problems in school, problems with drugs, problems with the law. She began running away all the time, getting in trouble, getting caught up in a bad crowd. It's evident that Karen was trying to run away and escape from whatever was happening at home. She also developed an interest in witchcraft, which I have zero interest with, or like issue with. I lived in Salem, Mass. Like I saw it all the time. It was it was totally fine. Well, and she's just trying to find not, an outlet. Yeah, like, and she's tried to kill herself and get away from this, and like every single yeah. time she's brought back, and like I, I can't imagine that. And like Karen's, Karen's, does like interest in witchcraft. I think was the cause of mental illness of like, I'm trying to heal myself in all these different ways and it's not working. So, Oh, because well, she needs an outlet, right? <laughs> she went out and got herself a Ouija board to communicate with those who'd passed. And she said that she took an interest in witchcraft because she started hearing voices. Ah, so yeah. Yeah. Okay. Karen did bunker down in her room and she began crafting all of these different potions that she truly believed were going to help cure her. She created love spells and love potions to get boys to date her and love her. And her mother said, no, that's not going to happen. And brought in ministers who repeatedly attempted to, quote, cast out the demons. So. Her mom sucks. Yeah. Like. Now, I mean, I get, I don't even, like, what does those potions smell like? Like, I don't know if it's, like, potent. It's stinking up the house. Yeah. I can understand. (laughs) But maybe, like. Yeah, like, I don't know. You could have done a lot more than just, I don't know. The mom's now taking an interest in her well, after, like, she's tried to kill herself right. multiple times. And, like, now you're just, like, I don't know. There's a lot wrong with that. Well, here's the thing. Exorcisms never bode well for anybody. They never really bring the family together like you're hoping they will. Um, you can really just cut your losses after that. Yeah. Because, first of all, exorcisms are extremely violent. They're abusive. And, second, there was also this, like, huge waving flag that it wasn't just the spirits it was actually earthside demons that were hurting her and well, attacking and like, her yeah like okay she's tried to kill herself multiple times and like your idea and like now she's i don't know i mean i get it mental illness wasn't like you didn't know what that was back then but yeah i mean i, I still as a parent you'd probably think like okay she's obviously unhappy she doesn't yeah. want to live this world and now she's taking up an interest that's probably not the best for her. it's probably like maybe she's just trying to escape yeah. and, like and, and you're I, like, yeah, let me traumatize her more. and Let's bring in bad. Like, well, I and know. I, I know that exorcisms, I feel like too in the 90s were kind of a thing of like, especially if you grew up in a religious household. But to me, like that would never be my first. And maybe it's because we, we live in the time of period that we do. But like calling in a priest would never be. And maybe like if my daughter started popping up potions, I'd be like, yo, can you make me some? Like, how do I get some potion to make some more money? I don't know, a better job. Like I'd be like, hook me up. Is it working? Like maybe I'd find, maybe I'd bond with her on my on her interests. Like, did your love potion work? Did you find a boo? And if she's like, yeah, it, it worked, I'd be like, hmm. Let me get some of that. Why? I would be not the love potion, <laughs> but I'd be I'd be getting I'd be looking I'd be looking into her potions. I'd be trying to like find out what she God. likes. Cause yeah, what if she's like, yeah, I can get a get rich potion. I'd be like, oh, sign me up. Just saying. How much you charge for that? Yeah, just you should probably indulge in her interest first. I'd see it as an entrepreneurship. <laughs> That's what, I That's what I'm saying. I'd be like, hmm, what? let's make this work. What are we doing here? Now, Karen's connection to this group was that she had been dating Joseph Risner, and she had become really good friends with Natasha Cornett. She met them both at Betsy Lane High School. 
Karen did go on to drop out of school. She moved back in with her father and worked towards her GED. Karen was only 17 years old at this time, so she was still a minor. And as you can see, she went through a lot before she was even 18 years old. I don't even want to know how you spend 17, your first 17 years of life dealing with stuff like no, that. I it's just either. miserable. Karen had been working really hard to save up for a car, so she was doing a lot of babysitting and keeping herself busy in the area to get herself that car. Yeah, and you can see with a lot of these kids, like, they're on the cusp yeah. of being I'm able to, to yeah, get out, get out. Mm-hmm. but there's always something that brings them right back in. Yep. And that's just really shitty and sucks. Now, Natasha. Oh, yeah, we haven't heard about this woman yet. Oh, Natasha, who everyone seems to be connected to here. Now, how old is she? She's 18? She's 18. Or 17? 18, I believe. She was described as the leader in the group mm. and the leader in this murder. So Natasha Cornett was born on January 26, 1979, into poverty in rural eastern Kentucky. Natasha's mother, Madonna Wallen, was not married to her biological father, who was a local police officer named Roger Burgess. Roger, I'm calling you out here. Because mm. you, you just, you did, you did these people dirty. And Rod- he's the officer. Yes. Okay. And Roger is Natasha's dad. Roger and Madonna Wallen were both married when Madonna had gotten pregnant. They were having an affair. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying yeah. there. Okay. So Roger. Not like, married to each other. Not married to each other. Mm. They were married to others. Wow. They had an so affair. So it started off hot. Yes. Oh. And Madonna became pregnant with Roger's baby. Oh, how do you explain that one? Roger wanted nothing to do with that. He was just looking for like a fun side fling. So once she got pregnant, he cut that all off. Now, Madonna then tried to lie and basically say that her husband, Ed, was Natasha's father. Mm-hmm. But that didn't really bode well either. Because um, when they grow up and start to look nothing like Like him at all? Yeah, you're like, yeah. hmm. When Natasha was little, her mother left her husband, Ed Wallen, and Madonna raised Natasha alone as a single mom in a trailer located on the outskirts of Pikeville, Kentucky. While she was in elementary school, Natasha had found her mother laying naked after overdosing on prescription drugs in the trailer. She's almighty. Natasha's mom was a disaster, and she did everything but be a mother. Natasha raised herself most of the time, and she had to fend for herself, take care of herself. By junior year of high school, Natasha was completely alienated from her school peers due to her unconventional and disruptive behavior. She suffered from anorexia. Oh, and wow. She, yeah, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which went largely untreated due to the lack of health insurance that the family had. Or the care of her own mother. Yeah. Since her mother had her own issues and neglected her daughters, Natasha also began self-harming where she would cut her wrists. Natasha's mother, Madonna Wallen, has come out to admit that she did physically abuse Natasha while she was growing up. She also stated that her husband... The one that she initially believed was Natasha's father, not the cop, had been sexually abusing Natasha while he was in the house. It's like all of these kids have dealt with that. All of them have dealt with drug use and sexual abuse. Jeez almighty. Madonna did notice that Natasha's mental state was declining and there were a lot of problematic behaviors that were taking place. And so she did admit her daughter into a hospital. But since the family didn't have any insurance, she really couldn't stay long and no treatments could be done. The family also couldn't afford the follow-up care. So again, Natasha was left to fight her battle on her own with the little that she had. It's because our country has great health insurance. Riveting. Riveting stuff for us. Literally. Sometime during her freshman year of high school, Natasha dropped out. And this is when she and Karen Howell became extremely close. The two bonded over their childhoods. Both of the girls were in the goth scene. 
Natasha wore baggy black jeans, lace-up black boots, dark makeup, and she even wore dog collars. I mean, what kind of dog collars? <laughs> like a dog collar or like a choker? Like a dog collar. Okay. We all have our thing. The two found a lot of acceptance in the goth scene. They were the kids who didn't really have a scene, and they didn't fit in with the norms of society. At age 17, Natasha did get married to a guy named Steve, who was also in the goth scene. The marriage did not last long, and after 10 months, Steve just up and abandoned Natasha. Of course. Yeah. Madonna, her mother, said that this is when Natasha fell into a really big depression. And that's so crazy how young they are. And I like know. they deal with all of all this of by this. the age of 18. I know. She began piercing her nose and her lips with safety pins at home. She was painting her nails black, dyeing her hair, listening to dark music. And we all go through things after a traumatic breakup, but this wasn't just a phase. Natasha liked that her look scared people. Mm. She wanted people to fear her, and she had a lot of pent-up anger buried inside of her that was beginning to shine through. I think, honestly, like when you get to the root of the problem... I really think that she was so angry inside and was sick of people hurting her and abandoning her that she was like, if I just scare them off, they can't hurt me. Uh, I totally get it. Yeah. What? Like, I would hate everybody in the world. Yep. Natasha started claiming that she was a vampire. I mean, she's been so traumatized. Nothing shocks me at that point. Yeah. And the other one's doing witchcraft, so, I mean, <laughs> this is one group of people I probably would never want to run into in my whole life. I just swear to you, they would. that would be absolutely terrifying. She covered her bedroom walls with satanic messages and posters. She told her mother that she heard voices, and she and Karen would do seances with the Ouija board. They would tell people that they were talking to spirits and talking to the devil himself. It was just getting really, really dark, and there was also a lot of drug use beginning to happen between the two of them as well. No, I mean, I understand it all. Now, this case took place during the satanic panic, which was really big in the 90s. The goth subculture was associated with Satanism, especially in the more conservative states within the United States. Which is Kentucky. Kentucky, and Tennessee. Tennessee. Yeah. yeah. Goth had spun off from the punk groups in the UK, but it ended up developing into a fashion style. But again, dressing in all black with dark makeup, wild hair, apparently somehow equated to Satanism. Mm. But... Though the goth subculture, even today, doesn't necessarily believe in Satanism, Natasha and Karen did take it to the extreme and did express an interest in Satanism. Not too much. I think it was more so curiosity where they were looking for something to be a part of. They were doing things like cutting themselves, drinking their own blood. That's not a part of the goth scene. That's No, that's a little bit extra. It's a little bit sassy, yes. a little pizzazzy. Yeah. Okay. Little, Very little cool. Very zesty. cool. Yeah. Natasha and Karen began isolating themselves from their peers and their families, but they did bring in another friend, Crystal. Crystal had a lot of similarities to these two. There was past sexual abuse, being an outcast in school. Crystal was overweight and she was bullied heavily for that. And the three began to bond over not being accepted at school and by society, by their parents. They began running around town, spray, t spray painting pentagrams, 666, and upside down crosses on buildings. Natasha began spelling her name backwards, which she was equating to Ah Satan. I mean, 
you're trying to find anything at this point to make you feel fit in or anything. And I think this is just one of those things. Maybe it's a scream for help, but I don't even know if it's a scream for help anymore. I think it's just like, this is my new thing. And Mm -hmm. like, this is the only thing I feel accepted for it. I don't really care. And it's fun. You're just like, screw the world. I'm going to spray paint this. I'm going to do this. I Mm -hmm. want everyone to hate me because the world's like, I don't know. I mean, imagine coming to this world and everything you do. You're just a kid. You've done nothing wrong. And every turn you make, someone's doing something miserable to you. It's like, why is my life so unfair? And like Natasha says something later in this case that I was going to bring up, but I think I'll bring it up right now because I think it bodes a good point. When Vidar went up to them and asked, do you believe in God? She said, no, I don't believe in God because he's never answered any of my prayers or helped me before. So to me, it's like, okay, I totally understand why you've turned to Satanism because you've been through all of these awful, awful, awful things. Nobody's helped you. Mm. Nobody's showed you love. Nobody's gotten you out of these situations that you go, why would God be real? Oh, I know. Everyone tells you over and over, just pray. He'll answer your prayers. He's always there for you. And it's like, oh, really? Because like, look at my life. So it's like, I get the anger and I get the resentment of God. I totally God would piss me off if I was them. Like, like, I don't mind it. Damn, God. You got about five seconds to show your cards. Yeah, like, but like, seriously, give me something. And it's like every turn they make, someone else is abusing them. Yeah. And And it's like, why would I even believe you or believe any of that crap? Like, I get it. Yeah. Now, Natasha deemed herself as a leader. She would lead Crystal and Karen. And the three of them would prowl around town carrying two books. The Book of Black Magic and the Book of Complete Magic and Witchcraft. So they were the Hocus Pocus witches. <laughs> I was thinking that. When I wrote this, I was like, I think of the walk like. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, 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 and they walk around town. <laughs> with the book. Yeah, with the books. That's that not, is, that's, not uh, that funny. It's not funny, but it is for us because yeah. we watched it. Sorry. No, we have the Hocus Pocus book right, right here. here. I know. They'd hang out in Natasha's trailer or in local motels. They'd cut each other, they started drinking their each other's blood, and then they would hold the seances with the Ouija board. That is crazy. Yeah, I mean, it is like it's a gang. Mm-hmm. The town that these guys were living in was really not a good area. There was actually a lot of depression that was riddling the town. The poverty rate at this time was really high because it was a former coal town and people had just recently all lost their jobs. People in the town were not paying attention to these three pretending no. to be vampires because they were trying to get their own lives together. The drug use of the town was also extremely high, so it was just not a good scene at all. So these three were just running around, and the cops were like, I'm sorry, but there's so much else we have to do. Well, it's like they don't want to be in that area anyways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The group's mantra was, quote, Well, I hate, therefore I am. They talked about how they were going to plan the apocalypse with their witchcraft, and they made plans to go to New Orleans, where there's a big vampire scene, a lot of spirits, and some crazy voodoo. But the three girls did not want to go on this road trip or set the apocalypse up by themselves. So they brought in three guys. Yeah, they were like, we can't do this on our own. No. We can't blow the world up and have an apocalypse. Like, we need, we some, need at least three more. We need some manpower. Joseph Risner, who was Karen's boyfriend, 14-year-old Jason Bryant, and 19-year-old Edward Mullins. Edward was very insecure, so he loved that he was accepted by this group. He loved that he was needed, that he was wanted, that he was dating the leader of the group, and he began spending all of his time with them. Yeah, he's like El Chapo's wife. Yes. He's feeling it. He's feeling it. He's like, that's my woman. 
<laughs> Look at her. She's going <laughs> to put an her. end to this world. Look at her. So beautiful and all killing of all mankind. Look at her. The six would spend a lot of free time at Natasha's mother's trailer where they would do drugs and plan their road trip and their end of the world and their killing spree. What a hangout. <laughs> As you can see, <laughs> Natasha's mom was very attentive. So she was clearly putting an end to this. Yeah, you got the drugs? You got the book of all gill all? Let's do this. The group of six named themselves, quote, the Wild Bunch. And they watched the movie The Natural Born Killers. I've never seen it, but people do say it's really disturbing and it's almost too disturbing to watch. I've never seen it. I haven't either. I don't like that name. I'd rather the six. Like, that's cooler. Because the devil's number of six. Yeah, six, six, six. And like the six, y'all, the six. Yeah. I should have been in that group. Oh my god! I would have ran it. You would have run with your tail between your legs. Oh, I would have been mortified. I was gonna there say, is no you, way I would have lasted. You are the most vanilla person in the world. Oh, I can't deal with that problem. No. It's too much nonsense <laughs> yeah, for me. Like, I know. I would be out so fast. I know. This movie really amped up the group, and it made them want to take what they saw in the movie and turn it into real life. The movie also romanticizes murder and death, and Natasha loved that. She loved that she was a leader. She loved that all these people looked up to her. She loved death. She loved Satan. And she loved that all of these people in her group wanted to kill if she wanted them to. So, I don't blame her. Like, I, re- I don't blame any of these kids for how they feel. Like, she never, Natasha's never felt loved. And, like, they you know, really don't even know. know what love is. So, like, for you to be, like everyone looks up to you that's got to be a feeling you've never even remotely had in your life before and that's got to bring you some sort of it's like a drug yeah and the problem is there was no one there to help course correct them no to say like okay i totally get what you're feeling we're we're just we're not we're not placing that correctly we don't want to kill people with that we want to do something else right like let's there's a thing called pickleball we can play three on threes two two v twos because obviously she she has the qualities of a leader, right? She attracts people. She makes them feel welcome. She makes them feel a part of it. Yep. There's tons of other kids who've also been sexually assaulted and grown up in these places. She could have run a group home and attracted more people to do good things. Like, all right, guys, like, let's go out and clean up the community or let's talk about these things or let's, you know, figure out how to get other kids out of this situation. But the problem was she had so much anger. And who's going to teach her that? Right. But that's what I'm saying is there's yeah. nobody there to help no. guide those things. She and like these kids never. I really, like I said, they don't even know what love is. So no, it's like, how don't. do you even like? And if anyone ever came into their life to try and teach them new stuff, like who? Are they like I wouldn't trust them. No, and they're so resentful. Yeah, I wouldn't trust anybody. So I know. So it's like it's almost like it's a sad thing. That it's like they're a lost cause in a way. I know. Because they're not going to believe you. They're not going to mm-hmm. try and believe you. You've already done all. Like when you're 14 years old and you don't even like. That's just ridiculous. That's just crazy. The group packed up and climbed into Joseph Risner's mom's Chevy Citation, which is a small car, and it was holding six people. I was like, where are all these parents? Doing drugs. and Jeez almighty. Yeah. Like, this isn't a good town, so I'm assuming they're either working. Or just don't care about their kids. Yeah. I, I just, this is just not, it's just all not a good scene. Before they got on the highway to start their journey, they stopped and stayed in a motel. People think that this is where they came up with their final plans. But what we do know is that they did self-mutilation rituals in this motel. They're self. Yeah. As in like. Natasha, Karen, and Crystal all cut themselves a lot and drank each other's blood. Oh my God. Jason carved Natasha's initials into his arm and then they started a fire in the room. They burned 666 into the carpet and then they poured wax into it. They vandalized and stole from other rooms at the motel. 
and when they left the motel, they drove to a small campground in Paintville, and there they burglarized two homes. They stole two semi-automatic handguns from one of the houses. Oh, my God. They then tried to hotwire a car so they could get a bigger car, but it didn't work. And they tried to do this because their own car, Joseph's mom's, his it kept overheating. But then they climbed back into it and continued on their way. Yeah. I mean, yikes. Yeah. Also, did the motel, like, have no fire alarms? Um, I don't know. Again, like, I think it's a rundown. I know, but shitty. my God. This is when they made their way to the rest area off of I-81 in Greenville, Tennessee, and met the Lillard family. So just wrong place, wrong time. It really is wrong place, wrong time. Vidar and his family were eating lunch on a park bench at the rest area when the six teenagers pulled into the rest stop. When the Lillard family saw the group of six, Vidar wanted to approach them to share his teachings about the Lord and the Jehovah's religion. Little did Vidar and Delphina know that these people that Vidar was trying to save were actually going to completely change the family's life. Vidar went over and asked the group if they believed in God, to which Natasha spoke up and said no, because God never answered her prayers and was never there throughout her awful childhood and never helped her. And you knew that kind of pissed them off. A hundred percent. Like it would piss me off. You literally just burned all this stuff, drank blood, stole the devil. Yeah, yeah, 666. And then like some random person's going to come up and talk to me about God. Joseph Risner then pulled out a gun and pointed at Vidar. He told him that he wanted to discuss religion and God with them, but not here at this rest stop. According to Natasha, she tried to stop Joe. Joe told the couple that they wouldn't harm them, but they wanted the couple's van. The group then instructed the couple into the van at gunpoint and forced them to drive away from the rest stop and down a rural gravel road. The group would later claim that they really did just want the van. But if you really just wanted the van, why not just take the van and leave them behind? Because they were obviously not a threat. Well, it is interesting that Natasha tried to stop him. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Quote-unquote. I mean... Natasha, you'll... We have to get to the inter- and like to the questioning, but she changes her tune real quick when mm-hmm. the death penalty... Ah, oh, I got you. Again. It's a state that the death penalty is just... <laughs> holding strong I like and it. when natasha finds that out she goes from loving satan to loving jesus oh, real okay. fast nice. yeah mm-hmm. when the group got to the gravel patch with the ditch the group forced the family out of the van and into a ditch vidar pleaded for mercy and asked if they would just let his wife and children go and according to the entire group except natasha natasha was the instigator mm. jason the 14 year old held the gun on the family in the testimony Karen, Joe, and Natasha gave, they said that Jason was the one who led the charge and he was the one who shot the family. Jason said that it was Joe and Edward Mullins who did the shootings. There was gunpowder residue found on Edward Mullins later on. There were over 17 shots fired into the Lillard family. And the two-year-old still survived? Yep. God. Police had quickly found the bodies and it was evident that the family had been executed. Vidar and Delfina were pronounced dead at the scene, but Tabitha and Peter were taken to the hospital. Tabitha did die, but Peter did survive. When Peter was rushed to the emergency room, no one knew his identity, so doctors wrote his name down as John Doe. Peter had been shot in his head and also his side. Peter was believed to have been held by Delfina, his mother, as he was shot. Oh, Jesus. That's okay. The males were shot in the right eye and the females were shot in the left eye which was a ritualistic thing from their books. Uh, And like super execution style. Yeah. Yep. (sighs) Meanwhile, yeah. 
Meanwhile, Peter's aunt, Peter's sister, Randy Heyer, and her husband traveled from Sweden to care for Peter, who lost an eye and suffered permanent, neuro permanent neurological damage. They returned home to Sweden with Peter, and they eventually adopted him. It is believed that the children were shot after their parents. Investigators believe this because Tabitha had walked through her mother's blood because it was on the bottom of her shoes. So they think she ran over to her mom after she was shot. Oh my God. After removing the license plate from Joe's mom's car, the group abandoned it at the crime scene. They continued their journey towards New Orleans in the van, leaving the family behind for dead. Yeah, like, see, I don't, I, I'm, I'm all about understanding, like, what they're going through, but, like, there was no need to kill them. No. What was the point? Nope. You could have just taken the van. Yep. Yep. You're in the middle of the woods. It would have been hours till someone comes and finds that family, too. Yeah. And you would have been long gone. Mm-hmm. They stopped at the Waffle House while traveling through Georgia, but they left the restaurant when a group of police officers arrived. They decided to drive straight into Mexico instead of going to New Orleans, and when they reached the border, they were initially denied because they didn't have any proper forms of identification, like they didn't have any passports or a reason to be in the country. And don't they, they don't have a license they plate? They don't have a license plate, yeah, but they eventually found a way into Mexico. While in Mexico, Jason Bryant was shot in the hand and the leg, I don't know if this was an internal shooting, like from the group, or an external shooting, but either way, the group was stopped by the Mexican police because this drew some attention. Huh. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. When they claimed, when the group claimed that they were lost, the officers ordered the group out of the van and conducted a search, which led them to find a knife, as well as a photo album and belongings to the Lillard family. Whew. <sighs> They ordered the group to re-enter the United States and basically flagged American Border Patrol officers that something had happened. Well, look at the Mexican police. I, I know. know. I was like, you. we're working together. I like it. And then American Border Control, Border Control, Border Patrol, Border Patrol, American Border Patrol officers searched them and then took them to an Arizona jail. At the time of their arrest, which was two days after the murders... Several of them had personal items that belonged to the Lillids in their possessions, which made it really easy for police to pin the murders on these guys. Natasha. I'm so sad because it's like, for what? I know. For a van? I do think it was like ritualistic initiation. Well, I think they were more just pissed off too against the world and yeah. they took it out on this family. Mm -hmm. Natasha told investigators that she was in the van the entire time. She was screaming and crying to the rest of the group not to hurt the family. She told police that Jason laughed and told her to stop crying. Ew, so now she's flipping the whole yep. script on her own friends. Yep. He yep. then, she said he then continued to laugh and laugh and laugh as he pulled the trigger 17 times on the family. Natasha said that once the little lids were killed, the group all laughed and cheered each other on while she watched in horror from the van. <laughs> of course, she's just mm -hmm. sitting in the van. Right. Uh-huh. The okay. one who named the group the Wild Bunch yeah. and loves Satan is like, no, no. No, it wasn't me. I was in the van the whole the time. Van. When they went to leave, their own car was stuck in the mud, so they had to take the Little Lids van. The group drove away with their grand scheme to get away from the murder scene and leave the country. Prosecutors and investigators immediately dubbed this family's murder as a ritual killing, and the reason being was not only where the family was shot, but also the four bodies were dragged together in a four-point shape like an X. The group then drove over the bodies with their van. Oh my god. Yep. All four bodies had tire marks on their clothing. I'm so surprised that kid survived. Yeah. 
It's unbelievable. Crazy. After the shooting, there were no signs of remorse. Neighbors in the area had heard the shooting and then heard laughing and cheering, and that's what made people go check out what happened, and that's when they found the bodies. This case grabbed media attention hot and heavy because this was, again, satanic panic times, and this was obviously a ritual killing on a very religious family. Once the media got a hold of what the group of six looked like, it was all over. Stories of the six were shared with the world, how they worshipped the occult, performed seances, and how Natasha had gotten married at 17 years old wearing a black dress, dog collar, and a red cape. Stories of how the group cut themselves and drank their own blood were making headlines. And obviously, when this is a time where people are saying, Oh, they want to throw satanic the, panic yeah. and goth, like this just fits that oh, whole yeah. narrative. Death penalty, throw away the key yep. type. You know. Yep. Natasha even owned up to this in the beginning when she was caught. She told investigators that she was Satan's daughter and she worshipped him. But the whole bad girl, Satan worshipping demeanor quickly went away when investigators told her that she was looking at life in prison or the death penalty, which a lot of the jury was willing to give her. Yeah, 100%. She, I would have. Like, the way you kill that family mm-hmm. is for no, ugh, gross. She then turned real good girl, God-loving, and suddenly had nothing to do with the murders once the death penalty was yeah, on the table. Whatever. Investigators had so much evidence and caught these guys in the van with the weapons Eyewitnesses had seen the group at the rest stop and seen them leave with the little lids. All six of these people had a different story. They were pointing fingers at one another. It was just so obvious to the investigators and the prosecution that every single person in that group was involved. And they ended up getting the entire group to plead guilty really quickly to first degree felony murder. Good. Prosecutors stated that Natasha was an inherently evil person and the other five in the group were just following her lead. She preyed on, quote, misfit teens and teens with lower IQs who were more likely and more easily to be influenced. Natasha wanted to be a leader, and she lived through a horrible, traumatic childhood, which all probably played a part in the crime that she'd committed against the Lilith family. In court testimony, the group admitted to forcing the family into the van, lining them up along a ditch, and shooting them as they begged for their lives. Five of the defendants insisted that Jason Bryant fired the fatal shot, and Jason Bryant blamed Edward Mullins and Joe Risner. Autopsies found a combination of bullets from two guns in the bodies, indicating that there were at least two shooters. What they all knew was, or what prosecution investigators knew was, Joe Risner, Jason Bryant, Karen Howell, and Natasha Cornett rode in the van with the Lilliths. Vidar drove while Joe held a gun on him and sat in the passenger seat. Edward Mullins and Crystal Sergil followed in Joe's mom's car. In an attempt to calm her children, Delphina began to sing, and Jason reportedly ordered her to stop, and Joe directed the little lids first to the interstate and then to a secluded road at the next exit, Payne Hollow Lane near Greenville. The little lids were then lined up against a ditch along the road where they were shot, and then checking the bodies, Jason Bryant stated to the group, quote, they're still fucking alive, and shot them all again. And then ran them over. Yep. Hmm. Cleland Blake, a forensic pathologist, testified that Vitor's body had six gunshot wounds, one to the right side of his head and five to his chest. The first shot entered his right eye, traveled through his temple, and exited in front of his right ear. While he could not be certain, it was Cleland's opinion that this shot was fired from a 9mm handgun and it would have caused a loss of consciousness. Vidar then fell to the ground, on his back, and was shot three times in the upper right side of his chest. 
The wounds were described as also being consistent with those from a 9mm and a targeted so that they would form an equilateral triangle. A wound just below Vidar's nipple was consistent with a 25 caliber weapon, and a final wound from a 9mm was located just beneath that. There was a laceration on Vidar's right forearm, where he had been grazed by a bullet, and post-mortem superficial abrasions to the back of his legs, so Vidar most likely died within a few minutes of the initial gunshot wound to his right eye. Delfina was shot eight times, and all eight bullets were recovered. Six were from a 9mm and two were from a 25 caliber. The first shot from the 9mm shattered a bone in her left arm, and the second shot, also from a 9mm, shattered the femur in her left thigh. Blake testified that these shots would not have killed her, but would have caused severe pain, leaving her unable to stand. Delfina was shot an additional six times while on her back, with the first three shots striking the left side of her abdomen. It was Blake's opinion that these shots were fired to form a triangle pattern, similar to the industries inflicted on Vidar. The three shots pierced her stomach, leaving a four to five inch tear, and traveled through her pancreas, spleen, and left kidney and left adrenal gland. I know. A final 9mm entry wound was located at the midsection of Delphina's abdomen just above her navel, and the bullet was recovered from her spine. There was a 25 caliber gunshot wound under her left armpit where the bullet entered, coming to a stop in the skin on the back of her left shoulder. Another shot caused a wound to Delphina's left side, and the bullet was recovered from the center of her liver. She also suffered abrasions on her right calf, and Delphina's wounds were not immediately fatal, and she could have been conscious for as long as 25 minutes, including while her body was driven over by the van. Six-year-old Tabitha was shot once in the head with a small caliber weapon, with the bullet entering the left side of her skull and traveling downward and exiting behind her right ear, so somebody standing over Mm -hmm. her. The wound caused immediate brain death. Hospitalized, she did remain on life support until her uncle, who had been named her custodian, gave permission for several of her organs to be donated. Physicians harvested her heart, liver, gallbladder, kidneys, pancreas, spleen, and adrenal glands, and Tabitha was pronounced dead one day after the shooting. Two-year-old Peter was shot twice with a small caliber weapon. One shot entered behind the right ear and exited his right eye. A second gunshot penetrated his back and exited through his chest. He was transported by a Lifestar helicopter to the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at the University of Tennessee Memorial Hospital in Knoxville, where he was listed in critical condition. Peter required vigorous resuscitation, having sustained contusions to his right lung with some residual bleeding in his right chest cavity, and doctors removed his damaged eye 11 days after the shooting. He remained in the hospital for 17 days before being transferred to a Knoxville Rehabilitation Center. Natasha and her defense attorney tried to use the insanity defense from her childhood. Yeah. When asked what her involvement in the kidnapping and shootings of the Lillard family had been, she said, quote, I didn't know what was transpiring until it was too late. And when I did figure out what was happening, I tried my best to prevent it. Yeah, she thought everyone was stupid. 100%. Natasha said her first indication of trouble was when she received a gut feeling that something was wrong at the Interstate 81 rest area near Baileyton, where the group of six encountered the Lilliet family. Quote, it was Joe and said he wanted to converse with Vidar about his religious beliefs. That just brought up red flags because Joe was not a religious man. I tried to convince him that we should just leave and get on our way. Every step that he took, I was trying to prevent it. 
I got in between Jason and the family to where the gun was pointed at me and tried to convince him to not do that. I begged and I pleaded for what seemed like an eternity for him to stop. When I discovered that there was no stopping him, I begged for at least to let the children be saved. He told me that if I didn't move, he would shoot me. I don't think I would have moved anyway until he promised and swore to me that he would not harm the children. And that's when I moved. I didn't think that I could do anything to prevent it if I was dead. I thought I had more of an opportunity to convince him not to do anything if I just got out of his way to where he could calm down. Prosecutors shared with the court that each of the six alleged killers had taken a souvenir from the victims or the crime scene and kept these in their pockets on or in their wallets. Karen had taken Vidar's social security card and Tabitha's Hello Kitty toy. Natasha had taken Tabitha's social security card and her wallet. And Crystal had taken the Lillian family house keys. Prosecutors had stated that they thought this was an initiation killing, with Natasha leading the entire ordeal. The planning had been done at her trailer, and she owned all of the books on rituals and Satanism, and the group all met through her. They said that Joe and Edward wanted to impress the girls and that Jason was just pure evil and wanted to commit violent acts and finally found a group to do so. Crystal wanted to fit in and Karen looked up to her best friend and followed along with whatever she said to do. The group went on trial together and all six of the teenagers from Kentucky, which included two minors, Jason and Karen, were convicted of felony murder for the three deaths in 1998. They were also convicted of carjacking. Each received three life sentences with no chance at parole oh, good. and an additional 25 years for the attempted murder of two-year-old Peter. To this day, we don't actually know who it was that shot the family, but there were two shooters. I think it was the two boys. I do too. I think it was Joe and Jason. Yeah, they wanted to seem cool. Yeah. But Natasha was the one literally telling them, shoot mm-hmm. them and where to shoot them and mm-hmm. what. Yeah. I think Natasha was behind shoot the boys in the right eye and the girls yeah. in the left. Yeah. yeah, she was like the puppeteer. Yep. There was a huge angry mob that surrounded the courthouse while these guys were sentenced and when they first initially went to court. Everyone wanted to see them behind bars for life or get the death penalty. Um, The reason that they did plead guilty is pretty cut and dry. They basically, if they went on trial, they would be found guilty and then they'd all get the death sentence. Jason Bryant, only 14 at the time, was tried as an adult because prosecutors made the case that he was a psychopath I'm not kidding. That's literally what they said. Like, he's a psychopath. At 14 years old, your brain isn't fully developed, so you can't actually be a true psychopath. But based on the cruelty of the crime and all of the premeditation and then the killing the kids and then running them over, it was pretty easy for prosecution and the judge to deem Jason a true psychopath and give him a life sentence. Good. Everyone has appealed their sentences. Karen and Jason have been doing the most appealing, basically saying that they were too young to be sentenced to life without parole. They shouldn't have gotten life sentences. They shouldn't have been tried as an adult. Since her arrival at prison in Nashville, Natasha has earned her GED and a certification in cosmetology. I don't even, like, why? Why does she get that? I know. Why, for what? Like, I, like there, I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's no reason she should be able to do those things when the two kids don't even get to do that. Mm-hmm. On August 24th, 2001, death row inmate Krista Pike, with alleged assistance from Natasha Cornett, attacked fellow prisoner Patricia Jones and nearly strangled her to death with a shoestring after Pike and Jones were placed in a holding cell with Natasha during a fire alarm. Although the Department of Corrections believed that Natasha was involved, investigators found insufficient evidence to charge her with helping Pike, who was then found guilty of attempted murder. I mean, she's in jail so for think, the rest of her life anyways. Yeah, but. I think that she, like, wrangled that girl to do it. Mm-hmm. Again, she's good at leading people. 
20 years after Jason Bryant helped murder the Lillard family, he wanted federal judges to give him a chance to go free. Lawyers for Jason Bryant were arguing that recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions entitle him to a chance at freedom. Quote, Mr. Bryant has the distinction of being the youngest person in the state of Tennessee, either before or since, to be condemned to die in prison. All three of Mr. Bryant's life sentences are presumptively unconstitutional. Jason Bryant's appeals rely on Supreme Court rulings issued in 2012 and 2016 that limit imposition of life imprisonment for offenders younger than 18. Those decisions dealt with state laws in Alabama and Louisiana. 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 (laughs) Those decisions dealt with state laws in Alabama and Louisiana that mandated life without parole for juveniles convicted of murder. Tennessee has no such laws, so it doesn't really apply there. Jason Bryant's attorneys argue that those rulings effectively render life without parole unconstitutional for young offenders. The petition asks that a judge either order a new parole hearing, cap his sentence at a defined time that offers a chance for release, or order a new sentencing hearing at the state level. This didn't work. Jason Bryant is still going to spend the rest of his life in jail. Have fun, buddy. Peter Lillid says that he remembers, quote, not a single bit from that night, and he does not like to think or talk about it. To this day, he's still living in Sweden and trying to move on from the murder of his family. He's still disabled, and he is blind in his right eye and has a hard time walking. Mm. God. And that is the murder of the Lillid family. That's sad. It's a really sad one. It's like at wrong place, wrong time. And then, like, why would you do those crazy, crazy things? But it's like, to me, like I said, I think it was built up, pent up, like, anger against the world. And this was their first time that, like, they stole the car. They made the, they they got the group together like they wanted to. And it was just the first person. And then they just took all their anger out on these, this family. Yep. One of the podcasts that I was listening to on this, the host thinks that Jason Bryant should get out why i'm sorry but i don't know because she was saying like they were saying when you're young your brain's not fully developed and you could have a chance at at being good and i'm like you can be good in prison yeah have like fun. honestly yeah. like yeah. i'm sorry but i don't know i don't know where everyone else stands on this and totally fine if you disagree with me at 14 years old i knew not to murder people no i i know they could, he had a horrible childhood right. and stuff but like you still did you it. still know right from wrong like you know right from wrong when it comes to murder and like I don't know. Uh, to me, it's like 14. But even if he did know, like, this was wrong and I shouldn't be doing this. And, like, Natasha's begging me. I, you still did it. And at this point, I'm like, I don't care. Like, yeah. you, you, what you did to that family? No, I'm, you're, you You deserve to be where you're at. I'm sorry. Like, I, I, I know. I'm sorry. Like, I know you had a shit. I know all these kids had mortifying childhoods. And I know you probably were convinced and wanted to seem cool to Natasha. And, like, you, you wanted to fit the in. World. Yeah, I get it. I totally get it. I don't, but what you did to that family is just mortifying. Every single one of you could have looked at each other and said, let's just take the car. Right. Let's just take the car. Like, even if you're like, and what also, what I also think drastically changed this was the fact that they They were able to rob a place and find guns. Oh, yeah. If they don't find the guns, this is a totally different situation. See, I think what changes this is like, we think of Gypsy Rose, right? Like, she was also a teenager and murdered her mother that's to stop abuse to me i look you look at that as i'm looking for a way out and the only way to put an end to this is to kill this person i can sit here and go "Mm, i kind of get it like i get it when she served her time right she served her time 
what I don't get is you go out and hunt down a family yep. who has nothing to do with your past. Not only do you do, you shoot them overkill, you then place their bodies and you run them over. Yeah, that that's where I draw the line too. It's like, okay, why the two and the six-year-old? They didn't, like, why take their lives? I don't know. It's just, I don't I don't agree with any of that. I'm sorry. You, like, it's just, I, so what you're saying is, is if a 14-year-old murders an entire family, he should have the ability to get out because he was just young? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't, okay, what if it was your family? What if a 14-year-old right. came into your house and robbed your, fa- robbed your house and killed everyone in your family and then in 20 years you go, yeah, we should forgive him and just let him out. Like, I don't, I'm sorry, but like there's, and it was premeditated. There was multiple, multiple, multiple times that every single one of these kids could have said, let's just, even if you're like, let's beat them up. Like, let's rob them. Yeah, beat them up and rob them. Okay, that's one thing. But like these people are begging for their lives. Their two-year-old and their six-year-old are now crying under their mom. And you still have the, the, the passion to kill these kids after watching their parents die and you're and now they want now you want a second chance it was it was an interesting take because i was like did we not just hear the same case yeah i don't know about it i'm sorry like i see where the argument is i just don't agree with it right i see the argument i totally i see where people could say like that kid i don't i i just no no Uh, to watch to to shoot two kids parents in front of them and you see these kids running to their parents' arms and you sit there and you still take those kids and pull them away from their parents and shoot them in the heads. Well, and you had planned this road trip to go kill people. Mm-hmm. Like, I just, I'm so, sorry. I don't, yeah. I don't agree with it. I don't. Like, I'm all for hearing the sides of why you did it. I mean, again, if it's getting yourself out of an abusive situation, I'm more open to say serve your time and hopefully later yeah. in life you get a, a, a you get a chance because you didn't with an abusive situation. But this, uh, yeah, no. And it was random people at a rest stop who yeah, did just, no wrong. No. And they were abused. And yeah, they probably had, they probably, not only were they young, but their brains were underdeveloped. But like, I'm sorry. I just don't care. No, I know. I don't care. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry. There's other things you yeah, can do. Like, I'm sorry, but I know. Killers sometimes listen to podcasts about themselves. So, Jason Bryan, if you're listening, I hope that you stay in there for the rest of your life. Oh, yeah. Have fun, buddy. Just, yeah. Have fun. Like, Anyways, that's the case of the Little Lid family. Yeah, it sucks. And next week, when we put out the episode, I won't be here. I'll be in Guatemala. Guadalajara. According to Chase's grandma. Yeah. My grandma she's thinks she's going to Guadalajara. No where I'm going. It's okay. But, yeah, she's going to Guatemala, and I'm going to be here all alone. Yep. So. But I'll be on the episode. Don't worry. Oh, yeah. I'm not doing them by myself. <laughs> but if you want to follow us on Instagram, you can follow us at... Cry with a K. If you want to send us a K, you can send a doom. Crime with a K. Oop. A little burpee. Crime with a K at gmail.com. And other than that... See you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye.